Now, if you've not been here for um, a few weeks or, or not been here before, you won't know that we're working through um, this section of Mark's Gospel. We started back at the end of chapter 8, and uh, we've got another couple of weeks uh, until we get to the end of the uh, chapter 9. Um, it was called Pulling Out of the Nosedive. It was the report of the 2005 English Church Census. And it described the good news that the decline in English church attendance has slowed up. The report made a comparison. In the years between 1989 and 1998, one million people stopped attending church in this country. Some of them will have died, which is a pretty good reason to stop attending church, but that was the uh, figure. Whereas between 1998 and 2005, only a further half a million people had stopped attending church. And so the report likened the English church scene to an aeroplane in free fall in the 90s and now, in the first half of this century, it was, it seemed, pulling out of the nosedive. But it was still heading for a crash. The good news then was that the decline was slowing. The good news was that only half a million people left the church. The good news was that it would no longer take quite as long as it would have done for there to be no one in church anymore. Now let me tell you some really good news. For every African child being born in black Africa today, two Africans are becoming Christians. Every day between 80,000 and 100,000 become Christians somewhere in the world. Every week uh, some 1,600 new congregations come into being that weren't in existence the week before. The Indian Christian evangelist K.P. Yohannan, with his organisation Gospel for Asia, plants ten new churches every day. Now that's good news. All over the world, the Church of Jesus Christ is growing at a staggering rate. But that all, of course, just makes the sorry state of the English church even more lamentable. So why this decline in church attendance in this nation? Well, last week we studied Mark chapter 9 and we saw the great problem of unbelief in the church. This week, as we continue to look at Mark chapter 9, we see another big reason for church decline and it revolves around the leadership and their desire for power and control and status. That, you'll see, is the big issue here in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 41, page 1013. And if you're taking notes, here's the first heading. The the desire to be somebody, verses 33 and 34. The scene is set in verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Uh, Jesus and his disciples had been in the Galilee region and while they were heading home back to Capernaum, it seems the disciples had acted like little boys in the back of a car. They'd been arguing all the way home. They'd made the entire journey a misery. And so when Jesus got home, he felt like banging their heads together. And verse 33, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Verse 34, embarrassed silence. They kept quiet. And no wonder when we read on. Not only had they been at each other's throats, which was embarrassing enough, just look at what they'd been arguing about in verse 34. They argued about who was the greatest. It's pathetic, isn't it? It's so immature. 
they sound just like my children. When we're at the dinner table, if one of my children has recently excelled at something, they'll say in their loudest voice, Daddy, who's the best at playing tennis? Or who's the best singer in the family? It's obvious what they're up to. They're trying to promote themselves and put the others down. They want to be the greatest. I'm in a no-win situation. Except I've become smart. So whenever they ask that sort of question, when they say, who's the best singer, I always answer the same way. I say, me, I am. (laughs) To which they reply, no, Daddy, out of the children, who's the best singer? It's so immature to want to be the greatest. But that's what the disciples are up to. And when you realise whose company they're in, you'll realise it's not only immature, it is unbelievably stupid. They were in the presence of the one who owns everything, the one who made everything. If they'd have asked Jesus, who's the greatest, he'd have said, me, I am. See how pathetic it is? Having this sort of argument would be like me uh, down at Fullwood Tennis Club arguing with my friends about which one of us was the greatest tennis player while Raphael Nadal was standing right next to us. It's outrageous. But if that isn't bad enough, look back a couple of verses to all that Jesus had just been teaching the disciples. And this is where you really see how stupid this argument was. Verse 31. Jesus was teaching his disciples that he, the Son of Man, was going to be betrayed into the hands of men, that they would kill him and after three days he would rise. You see, Jesus had just taken his disciples on a study day and the subject has been his death and resurrection. He told them that he must suffer and die, a message that they seemed unable to grasp. They just didn't get it. One of our our children struggles with maths. She, she just can't get hold of numbers. So we have to keep going over and over, multiplication, subtraction, fractions, over and over until she gets it. That's how it is with the disciples and the cross of Jesus. Jesus, you see, had already explained to the disciples exactly what he taught them here in chapter 9, verse 31. Look back to chapter 8, verse 31. See, 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. That's exactly what he said in 9.31. Jesus was going to suffer and die and rise again and then he went on in in chapter 8 that anyone who would be a follower of his would have to walk the same road. Chapter 8, verse 34. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Suffering and death is the way of Christ and so self-denial, indeed death to self, is the way of the Christian disciple. Now that's what Jesus had been teaching them on their study day. That's why chapter 9 verse 34 is so disgraceful. He'd been teaching them about the cross, about him going to the cross and about the way of the cross for them and they argued about who was going to be the greatest. Again, they clearly hadn't heard a word that Jesus said, just like my children. The cross of Jesus had made no difference to them whatsoever. They were status-seeking rather than service-seeking. Now, you see, that is what happens whenever we take our eyes off the gospel. 
when the cross is not at the centre of everything we do, the church becomes just like the world. So surprised that Jesus told us to do one, if I can call it this, one religious thing over and over. Communion. The Lord's Supper, bread and wine. Why? So we wouldn't take our eyes off the cross. Sometimes people say to me, I've moved on from the cross. If you've moved on from the cross, you've moved on from Christianity. You see, when people don't have the cross at the centre, when the church doesn't have the cross at the centre, it becomes just like the world and desperately, that's exactly what we see in much of the church in Britain. Leaders clambering after greatness wanting to be the centre of attention, grabbing for power. And when Christians are like that and when church leadership is like that, the gospel will be hindered. It's a huge problem, this desire to be someone. Think of a man that I know in Christian ministry. He is desperate to be invited to speak at big conferences. He clambers to be on significant committees. He wants to control everything that he's involved in. He's always talking about having a position of influence. He says it's for the gospel. But when you get to know him, you really begin to wonder if it is or whether it's all about him. That attitude does not belong in the church. It's ugly and unbecoming. It's a denial of the cross and it's hugely damaging to gospel ministry and we'll see that in a moment where this passage rolls on to. This problem hinders the spread of the gospel and I think we'll see is one of the reasons why the church in Britain is in decline. Because the leadership in Britain don't believe the cross in the way they should. They've taken their eyes off the cross and now it's all about them. A desire to be somebody then, the first point, should be replaced by, secondly, a longing to serve anybody. Verses 35 to 37. See, verse 35, Jesus sat down. Very significant. That was the position of a preacher uh, in Jesus' day. A preacher wouldn't climb into a pulpit, but sit down on the ground. And so Jesus sat down to demonstrate to the disciples the importance of what he was about to say, because they're just not getting it. Because what he says in verse 35, you see, reverses all the expectations of greatness. Greatness, end of verse 35, is about, being, is, about, is about serving anybody. Everybody. Being the servant of everybody. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the, the very last and the servant of all. How different from the world that we live in. Greatness in the world is measured by the amount of people that serve you, isn't it? You're great in the world's eyes if you, you know, have a great mansion, a great estate, and then lots of people under you, cleaning, cooking, washing, ironing for you. Or if you employ many people in your business, or you have many answerable in your profession, or in the world of sport, if you have many people below you in the world rankings. The world's idea of greatness is bound up with position and status and achievement. But in the Christian life, it's reversed. The one who serves is the greatest of all. Uh, Bill Hybels is the pastor and founder of uh, Willow Creek Church in Chicago. Thousands attend on a Sunday, literally thousands. Uh, So big is this church that they have a hundred car park attendants. That's big. 
They don't have one car park attendant for each car, okay? It's big. They have a big car park. Bill Hybels has spoken at conferences all over the world. He's written a number of books that have sold hundreds of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of copies all over the world. But when he wrote a book called Descending into Greatness, all about this subject of serving others, of being the servant of all, no one wanted to buy it. Isn't that interesting? The attitude of the world has pervaded the church. Listen to the words of Vaughan Roberts in a, a sermon that he preached fairly recently. Quote, There's something not right about the way in England we refer to bishops' homes as palaces and we call his chair in the cathedral a throne, the way we put a mitre on his head and urge him to wear purple, the imperial colour. He goes on, It was the Apostle Paul who said, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. There's only one king, so we should be humble people. That's right, isn't it? That's what Jesus is saying here. We should be humble people because the one king, Jesus Christ, was servant of all. And so as we look at Jesus, as we look at his cross, we see that greatness is all about serving. That's what Jesus had been teaching in verse 31. But they didn't get it. And so he had to teach it again in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Just flip over the page, if you will. Mark chapter 10, verse 33. He said to his disciples, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. You see, Jesus taught the same thing again and again. Mark chapter 8 verse 31, Mark chapter 9 verse 31, Mark chapter 10 verse 33. Jesus kept teaching the disciples that he must suffer and die and only then rise again. But did the disciples get it? Look at chapter 10 verse 37. They asked, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. See what they're asking for? They want positions of honour. When you're in your glory, can one of us be the Prime Minister and the other the Chancellor of Exchequer? They just don't get it, do they? Jesus is going to suffer and die. Following him is going to be a way of suffering and dying. At least to self, if not physically. And so once again in chapter 10, Jesus has to bang their heads together. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. You see, that's the way of the world, lording it over people, wanting status, wanting authority. Verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. They're the same words you see that we saw in chapter 9. Why does he have to make the point again? Because they didn't understand. And then in chapter 10 come what I believe are some of the most amazing words you will ever read. Not just some of the most amazing words in the Bible, but some of the most amazing words you will ever read. Verse 45 of chapter 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, he's holding this up as an example for us to live by. The Lord of all creation says that he has come into the world to save us, to serve us. Isn't that amazing? 
Here, in that one verse, is what separates Jesus Christ from all the other religions of the world. Uh, When I was on my uh, honeymoon uh, 15 years ago now, uh, Caroline is a New Zealander, and so we were flying over to New Zealand, having been married here, uh, to go over and enjoy a honeymoon there. And we stopped off at Singapore for one day and one night. And uh, because we only had one day in Singapore, we thought we'd try and see it as quickly as we could. And we went on what's called the city tour. And the city tour took us to all the, the key sites in, in Singapore. And uh, we went to a, a typical temple. Now, if you've been to Singapore, you probably saw what I saw that day. In that temple, many different statues of many different gods. And everything in the temple was about people serving the gods. They were giving gifts to the gods. They were taking them fruits and nuts and berries. Ordinary people were trying to do enough to please the gods, to appease them. It was interesting seeing the fear on people's faces. Had they done enough for the god? Of course, if you're God, of course you get people to run around after you to serve you. If I was God, I'd be getting you to do everything for me. Make me a cup of tea, go and do this, go and do that. But that's not how it is with Jesus, with the one true living God. Verse 45, isn't it amazing? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus uses the phrase here, the Son of Man. It's a title that Jesus used more than any other to talk about himself. The Son of Man in the Bible is the figure with total authority over all creation. You'll see that in Daniel chapter 7. How astonishing then, the one with all authority in the whole creation should come and serve you. Little old you. Aren't these some of the most astonishing words you'll ever read? Jesus has all the power and all the authority in the world. He is the greatest and yet he came to serve us. That's greatness. He served us. What a God. And so you see, he is our pattern and our example. And that's what he was trying to teach the disciples in chapter 9 as we flip back. Look again at chapter 9, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. That's what it means to be a a disciple of Jesus, the servant of all. But take our eyes off the gospel, fail to have the cross in front of us, and it quickly becomes all about me. And when church leadership is all about stroking our egos, it is horrible. And it wrecks the church. I think of someone I know well. He's a minister in the Church of England. And he says the thing that discourages and deflates him most is his bishop. The bishop belittles him when speaking to him. When he goes into the bishop's study, the bishop sits in a large chair that looks like a throne and slightly higher than the other chairs in the study, and so the bishop looks down on him physically and symbolically. And then he speaks to him as if he's a naughty little boy. And whenever he meets with the bishop, which thankfully isn't very often, he is discouraged and deflated, because it seems this senior church leader has delusions of grandeur and seems to know nothing of serving others. By contrast, I see greatness here at Fullwood. I see it in the army of women who serve in the parish. Women who serve others tirelessly, always thinking of others. Those who clean the church. Most of us don't even know their names, do we? 
Those women who bake for others and never complain and never ask for thanks. They just see there's a need and they bake some food and they take it round to others and you don't even know who they are, do you? There is an army of women here who are in the church who are the great ones, always thinking of others. That's greatness. True greatness refuses to ask, what about me? True greatness asks, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I make people realise that they matter? No matter how insignificant society views them, they're important because Jesus died for them. And when the church operates like that, it is a spectacularly different thing from the world and it is stunningly attractive to the world. But we will only be like that if we have the cross always before us. And as we saw last week, the cross is being denied in the church. It's not believed as it should be in the church. And so people are turning to want to be great ones instead of servants. We're to be servants then and we're to be servants of all. That's the point, I think, of verses 36 and 37. The the emphasis is on the all as we turn to verses 36 and 37. Do you see those verses? It's easy to picture the scene in verse 36. Jesus uh, taught the disciples and and to teach them he took a little child to himself and verse 36, he wrapped the little one in his arms and he said, verse 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Jesus said we are to welcome ones like this little one. He says, we are to welcome little people. You see, it's not just about children that Jesus is talking here. In Mark's Gospel, little ones are his followers. You can see that as you flip over to verse 42. We'll look at this verse next week. Ed will be taking us through this. But look at verse 32 and you'll see how Mark uses the phrase little ones. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... See the point? Little ones are believers in Mark's Gospel because when you believe in Jesus, the world will consider you to be a nobody, a little person. I remember shortly after I became a Christian telling someone that I now followed Jesus and their response was, you're joking, aren't you? I said, no. They said, you must be. I said, no, I'm not. I'm following Jesus now. They they said scornfully, and I always thought you were an intelligent person. See, the world thinks that believers are nobodies little people who they should be little and so you see as Jesus took a child as an example of a little one he did it not just of a child but of a little one of a no one of a nobody to show verse 36 that we are to serve all because if you serve the nobodies you'll serve everyone See, as we look at this little child wrapped in Jesus' arms in verse 36 please avoid any sentimentality Jesus took a child to demonstrate that we are to welcome nobodies because as R.T. France writes, a child was a person of no importance in Jewish society, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, not one to be looked up to. Well, even today, as much as we value children, we recognise that in terms of status and authority and position, they are nobodies. That's the issue here. See, remember, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. They were after status and significance. And when we're after status, we value, well, we only value status, don't we? 
So if somebody important walks in, well, we might well serve them. We'd perhaps do anything for them. Someone insignificant walks in and we largely ignore them. When status and significance is our goal, yes, we want people to serve us, but we may be prepared to serve people who are of a higher status. But the way of the cross is to be served of all. And so as Jesus took this little child to himself, he was saying, greatness is about serving those who are nobodies, serving little people. Let me ask you if you've noticed how you treat people you respect. It was a great privilege for me to work, uh, with, uh, work with, work alongside, work for John Stott when I was uh, in London. He's been a great Christian leader these uh, past decades and the, the evangelical church owes much to his faithful service. Whenever I met him in the seven years I was working at All Souls, I always treated him properly. I was never rude to him. When he walked into the room, I always stood and acknowledged him. I offered to take his coat and hang it up for him. I listened carefully when he spoke. Greatness, says Jesus, is to serve everyone like that. Everyone. Greatness is to serve little people, nobodies like that. But you see, you and I will never do that if we want to be the great one. Because we will envy those who are greater than us and we'll take every opportunity to put others down so that they don't rival us. And that's exactly what happens in verse 38. And this is the real crunch moment in the passage. If you're taking notes, a desire to be somebody, point one, should be replaced, secondly, by a longing to serve anybody, which leads to, thirdly, a rejoicing in everybody's gospel ministry, verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now can you see here how the desire to be the greatest hinders gospel ministry and therefore how it ruins the church and stops church growth? Here was a man driving out demons. Uh, If you look at the text it says, in Jesus' name he was driving out demons and John says we told him to stop. Once again, we see the disciples haven't been listening to Jesus. Jesus has just been telling them to welcome everyone, but they wouldn't welcome this man. You see, when we take our eyes off the cross, two problems occur. There's a tendency to compare and a tendency to control. And they're both in verse 38. The tendency to compare. See, do you remember last week we saw how the disciples were unable to drive a demon out of a little boy? That was back in verse 18. Do you remember it? So this man in verse 38 was seen as a rival. He was doing what they were unable to do. Verse 38, teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. No, John, you told him to stop driving out demons because he was a threat to you. Because you couldn't do it. Do you see the point? If you want to be the greatest and you see others doing what you cannot do, you will be jealous. The tendency to compare then, that leads to a tendency to control. Verse 38, John said we told him to stop. Wanting to control, you see. See the problem here, the disciples didn't have the grace and the big heartedness to recognise others' ministry. If you want to be the greatest, when others are doing good gospel ministry, they are a threat to you. Especially if they're doing what you cannot do. 
It's interesting, earlier this week, I hadn't really even started working on this passage. I met someone uh, that I'd not met before. He's a church worker. He was telling me how he began a ministry among men that was seeing growth. And it was one of the few areas of the church that he was involved that was growing. And wait for it, his vicar told him that he couldn't do the teaching at this group anymore. What a disaster. The vicar was jealous. Think of another situation, a man, uh, a gifted evangelist, leading dozens of people to the Lord, I don't exaggerate. He held evangelistic meetings in his own home. He had a big home, very big home. He's a surgeon. And uh, most of the people who came to these meetings were his patients. Hundreds over the years were converted through this man. But people in the church didn't like it. These churchgoers weren't gospel people. They saw more and more people joining the church through this man's ministry than through everything else that was going on in the church. And wait for it, the vicar told him that he couldn't hold the meetings any longer. Meetings that were happening in his own home to tell his own contacts about Jesus. You can't do that anymore. What is that vicar thinking about? Now do you see it in verse 38? When people take their eyes off the cross, they want to be the greatest and they want control and they become jealous and they see someone doing what they cannot do and then they try and stop gospel ministry. That's verse 38. Do you see it? I say they they stopped, but I should say they tried to stop because in the case of the surgeon holding evangelistic meetings in his home, he planted a church that now has several hundred in the congregation and the church he reluctantly left well, you won't be surprised to hear it's not growing at all. Now, do you see, wanting to be the greatest ruins the church and stifles gospel ministry. Wanting to be the greatest results in a ridiculous situation where people would rather not see God at work at all than see him work through someone else. That's verse 38. Now, I find myself on the receiving end of it all the time. Since I arrived here at Fullwood, I found some churches in the area taking every opportunity to knock us. Now look, I can say what I'm going to say in the next few minutes because growth at Fullwood has had nothing to do with me. I've only been here five minutes. This church has seen many people become Christians down through the years. It's had a huge impact not only in Fullwood but in Sheffield and across Yorkshire in the north of England. Why would other churches not be pleased to see a church grow, particularly in Britain where so few churches are growing? Why would other churches not be pleased to see people converted, to see life, rather than the depressing situation that so many meetings in the diocese are devoted to, managing decline? I can only assume it's this. They want to be the greatest. And desperately it comes not only from other churches, but from senior churchmen when they look at thriving gospel churches. We're in a bizarre situation in the Church of England where senior staff seem to despise large churches. Can you believe it? What's that about? Rather than rejoice in the growth of large churches, they see them as a threat. And it appears that some senior churchmen would rather not see God work at all than see him work through someone else. And so rather than tap into the experience and expertise of large churches, large churches are marginalised and asked not to contribute to discussions in the diocese because as a large church they cannot understand the struggles of small churches. And then we wonder why church attendance in England is in such decline. When we take our eyes off the cross, we want to be the greatest and then we have a tendency to compare and control. 
So friends here at Forward, let's be sure we never go the way of these disciples. Let's be sure that we are big-hearted when we see other ministries doing well. Let's be sure that we rejoice when we hear of another church growing. When we're told of people being converted, let our heart flutter with excitement. And when we hear of successful ministries, especially ministries where we ourselves have failed, we should be over the moon that the Lord has blessed others. See, we should long for the church in this nation to grow. We should pray for it. We should want it, even when it means that Fullwood is no longer a big church or a big player, because all churches are large and thriving and full of life. May it be that we are considered ordinary and small. May we be big-hearted enough that we want that. But we will only be that big-hearted and that gospel-hearted when we have the cross in our sights and the gospel shaping our hearts so that our desire is not for us to be great, but for us to serve others to the glory of God. Let's pray together.